Hey brother Hear me now Brother dog Know me Understand Welcome to the Sargasset Podcast. I'm Robbie Thigpen. I'm Francesca Elmer. And I am Mar Fernandez. And we are your hosts for today. And we are going to share with you the latest ideas and concepts about sargassum and sargassum beaching events, which have become an international challenge. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Sargassum Podcast. We hope we have another fun-filled day of action and adventure for you, or at least maybe a good story or two. Hi, Robbie. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Mar, how are you? Good. Uh, we had uh, finally a nice uh, weekend here in Germany, nice weather, and uh, we've been testing uh, the drone to also learn how to look at algae from the sky, so very exciting stuff. What about you, Fran? How is it going? Well, we had a really rainy weekend here in Mexico and yesterday, once the rain stopped, I went back to the beach to check on the sargassum situation. It's always a surprise when you get to the beach of how much there is. And while the last week or two, I was able to go swimming because the brown water and the smelly sargassum was gone and we just had a little bit on the beach. It has gone back to being quite a bit on the beach and brown and brown water again. So, and the smell is back too. It's not that bad, but yeah, we're back to a lot of sargassum. (laughs) Robbie, did you have anything interesting happening? Well, not really. We we had the hurricane move through here, um, you know, good bit east of where we are. And uh, they didn't, they had a lot of stuff, but, uh, with that and with beginning of September, the weather has changed. So it's a, it's a, the, this, this is a good time of year for being in South Carolina and all not too hot, not too cool, actually kind of pleasant. And, um, and so that, that, that's kind of a good thing right there. But, uh, the devastation brought by the hurricane is, is, is horrible. And, uh, so yeah, but anyway, but let's get on to our, our podcast today. That's being brought to you by our good friends at Seafields. Who's, uh, they're doing a lot of good stuff to help um, eradicate some of these issues associated with these uh, beaching inundations and all. And uh, with that, we'll ask Francisca if she'll introduce our guest for this week. Yes, of course I will. Um, our two guests today are Dr. Denise Herzing and Casey Rusche. Dr. Denise Herzing is the founder and research director of the Wild Dolphin Project and has studied Atlantic spotted dolphins in the Bahamian waters for 32 years. In addition to many scientific articles that she wrote, she's also the co-editor of Dolphin Communications and Cognition and the author of Dolphin Diaries, My 25 Years with Spotted Dolphins in the Bahamas and The Wild Dolphin Project, which which came out in 2002. Casey Rusche spends her summers summer living on a boat in the Bahamas studying wild dolphins. But 10 years ago, she thought she would be working as a pharmacist. She started university as a pre-pharmacy student, but after just a few months and also working in the pharmacy, she realized it was not for her. So she discovered her real passion for understanding animal behavior and switched to ecology, evolution, an organismal biology concentration and has been working with the Wild Dolphin Project since her graduation. 
The Wild Dolphin Project is the world's longest-running underwater study of dolphins in the world. Since 1985, the team has spent months out at sea every summer living on boats and studying two species of dolphins that live in the shallow sandbanks of the Bahamas, the Atlantic Spotted Dolphins and the Atlantic Bottlenose Dolphins. The researchers have made many discoveries over the years regarding aspects of social structure, paternity, habitat use, behavior, communication, and movement patterns. Welcome to the podcast, Denise and Casey. Great to be here. Excellent, and it's great to have you. Um, we always start our, our, our interviews off with this first question, and they they rarely let me have an opportunity to ask it at all, and, and this is like such a fun question because this is a personal question that we're asking you. <clears throat> and and and, I, and so what we'd want to know is what does sargassum mean to you? Well, sargassum to me means uh, a toy that the dolphins play with. In my work zone, in my personal zone, of course, I live on the beach in Florida, so we see sargassum problems here as well. Not as bad as in the Caribbean, but you know, it's it's part of the ecosystem and it's many forms and things have changed, right? So that's what it means to me. Cassie, <laughs> your turn. Uh, to me, it basically means the same thing. So just a type of free-floating seaweed out in the ocean. And yeah, the main reason I see it a lot is because the dolphins are always playing with it. So it's a nice toy, natural toy for them out in the wild. Very cool. So Nice. Um, how do actually dolphins use sargassum as a toy? I mean, do they literally just play with it, or do you think it also has other other functions for them? I mean, as far as we know, they just play with it. I mean, they don't really eat plants that we are aware of. Um, so imagine a dolphin in the water with the appendages that they have and anything they can drag, including plastic, unfortunately. But sargassum is their natural toy and they taunt and tease each other with it and uh cassie you could attest to taunting and teasing humans with it as well yeah. right yeah so i mean like denise was saying is they'll drag it on their peck or fluke which is the fluke is the tail and when they they'll kind of like pass it back and forth between each other but then sometimes they'll even drop it to us and we can swim down and grab it and then we can toss it back to them and they'll come in swoop in and pick it up and then drag it around and but yeah i mean they'll They'll have it on their tail, and they'll kind of just, like, hang it and kind of um, wiggle it on their tail, kind of tempting us to come and grab it. But it's not proper dolphin etiquette to take it off of their tail, so we have to wait until they drop it. But, yeah, it's kind of like a game of keep away. All right. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait. Okay. <laughs> I, I try to play fetch with my dog, and he always grabs the ball and takes control of it. And all. Yeah. it's more like him playing fetch with me and me, rather than the other way around. Is that what you're describing here? You're playing fetch and, and some level of with with the dolphins and, and they're in control denise do you want to take it or you want me to well i mean i think it's yeah it's just what cassie said yeah they're totally in control um when we drop it in the water you know if we're playing this game you can dive down and try to grab it again and right before you get it they swoop in and get it because they're so good at it right um, and they do that with each other, too. I mean, they taunt and tease each other. It's, you know, it's part of their practice, I guess, to play with each other. And occasionally, when we're not just observing them, they include us in the interaction. So it, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So, so, so uh, you, uh, 
from what I understand about your, your research, you're been following around these same pods, so they're familiar with you. So are they initiating play with you guys? Is that what you're saying to me? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we try to be fairly benign and non-invasive and just observe their behavior. That's our number one plan of action mm-hmm. in the water. But because we're in the water, you can't really, like, hide from a dolphin, right? <laughs> so if if they're interactive and we're not disturbing their normal behavior of the larger group, we'll uh, interact with them with sargassum and, and play with them to, you know, keep up the, the bond and the trust level so we can watch them, basically. Wow. Wow. That is super cool. So... The dolphins don't eat the sargassum and they don't really use it as a habitat, but do you think they are dependent on it? Like, would their lives be worse if they didn't have the sargassum to play with? What do you think, Cassie? (laughs) Um, I mean, play is a very integral part of their social behavior. So during play, you can learn um, different things. So you can learn um, when the dolphin... Sorry, hold on. the dolphins learn socially how to interact with one another. So during play, you can kind of understand if you're crossing a boundary with one dolphin or maybe if that dolphin is trying to say that, oh, they're annoyed and they don't want to play anymore. So they can learn those different interactions. And that's always important when you're growing up within a society that's very social. So they get a lot of information from play. So, I mean, the sargassum is definitely one of the main toys we see them play with. So I think if they lost that, they would need to find something else to replace it with. And in addition to the sargassum, the species that they play with, there's also benthic sargassum in this area. And I'm not sure, if Cassie, if you've ever seen this, but the bottlenose dolphins uh, sometimes hang out in these um, fields of benthic sargassum on the bottom, right? And they'll go down and they'll actually rub and scratch against it. So maybe they'd lose their... Yeah. <laughs> scratching posts, as, as we say. So so I guess they do have multiple aspects that they use sargassum in. Maybe I add a follow-up question on this. Do you think they also use the sargassum maybe to clean themselves in a way, or do you think this is not really what they're doing? This is really just playing, and it has no other function for them? Well, uh, you know, they slough their skin constantly. I don't know that sargassum would be very functional as far as scraping their skin. But you never know when they're sick. Maybe it has an additional aspect of that. So um, so there's no sargassum loofahs then? <laughs> well, there are, like I just said on the bottom, the bottlenose go down and big sargassum clumps, clumps that are benthic on the bottom. And they do rub and... But, you know, again, I don't know that they're really trying to get stuff off their skin. I just think it feels good, really. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes if there's a big clump at the surface of the free-floating sargasm, sometimes the dolphins will kind of swim through it and kind of, like, roll around, and then as it falls off. So maybe that provides some kind of uh, scratching technique or something from the surface. But, yeah, like Denise says, we don't know exactly what they're using it for, but, like she said, it just probably feels good or scratches an itch. We're not sure. Yeah. Uh, for us humans, the sargassum often has hydrates on it that actually makes us itchy because of if we touch it, um, then we get bumps and itchiness. Are, are dolphins also like prone to be affected by hydroids and, or do you think they're, they're, they're not bothered by them? We definitely see hydroids sometimes on the sargassum. And of course we humans are bothered by that. Um, 
you know, dolphins swim through jellyfish all the time and these sargassum. So they must have some immunity like some of the fish do, you know, for hanging out with jellyfish and sargassum. So lucky them. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. You know, one of the things that uh, I I find disgusting in the world is um, is marine megafauna and stuff being kept in aquariums, you know, whale sharks, um, a lot of these other, you know, other large, huge fish, as well as, uh, you know, uh, marine mammals. And, but this has led to a lot of uh, research for these different species in captivity. Um, But you guys don't do that. and, And I like that a lot and all uh, why is it important to uh, study dolphins in the wild well I mean first of all it's where they live right and it's where they act natural uh, so that was at least my vision of trying to find a place where you could study underwater where you see what they're doing and can correlate sound and behavior um, you know you can't study everything in the wild though um, you know there has been great research that's come out of captive situations you know, our ethics around that has changed a bit, and now we're looking towards sanctuaries where maybe we can give them retirement without uh, entertaining people, for example. But we've all had experience with that in our lives, both being exposed to dolphins and uh, educated. Um, but, you know, things move on. We uh, hope science can transition with those ethics and observations, of course, with wild work. Cassie, you came from well, the Midwest, like I did, right? We're both inland girls. <laughs> What's your experience? Um, I mean, just kind of as Denise said, as long as the ethics continue in the right direction and possibly the open sea pens, I think there will always be um, some form of captivity because when you have dolphins that strand or that cannot be returned back to the wild, but we you know, want to have them still live a fulfilled life, I mean, we can use them for teaching um, opportunities, but having them in an open sea pen is kind of the best way to go. So, of course, that takes money, and hopefully we can get there at some point. But, yeah, I think there will always be a need for those animals who strand and can't be released, but don't, um, yeah, so the animals that cannot be released back into the wild. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting point because I – now that I have a small kid, I am always in two minds about taking him to aquariums or zoos because on the one hand, yes, I don't like the animals to be in captivity, but both as a scientist and as, as a mom, I know that maybe this is one of his few chances to see these animals and develop some kind of connection to them and maybe in the future want to protect them, right? And so it's sometimes difficult to um, to make a decision on it and be consequent with it. Um, but I do agree that, as you said, maybe sanctuariums and open um, open ocean water tanks or something like that would be would be the best um, to approach this. Um, and now my question is related to studying dolphins in the wild. What are the challenges of doing this? Because I can imagine that doing it in a in a closed tank is way easier because you can follow the same dolphin. You can do lots of experiments with it. But in the wild, it has a lot of challenges, right? So tell us a bit about it. Well, I'll rattle off my list of challenges. Uh, Number one is weather. Number two is financial. (laughs) Number three is regular access uh, for observation. And we're pretty lucky in the Bahamas. We work in probably one, if not the best places in the world to observe animals. Um, The fourth for me is uh, 
control if you want to do an experiment it's pretty hard to do in the wild that's why we do that in more experimental kind of settings um and then i guess cassie and i would probably agree it's just exhausting <laughs> to be out in the field i mean it's a privilege but it's exhausting with seas and hurricanes and sharks i mean there's all these and people on the boat you know there's all these like any field study i guess there's a dynamic that can be challenging you know we love the work it's a privilege but um and then uh i guess the positive is you're away from your allergies right cassie (laughs) (laughs) yeah apparently i didn't really i never had this much of an issue until this season so i don't know if it's something to do with Mm. something else going on in the environment but yeah they've been pretty bad but I mean, um, going along with Denise's list, I can't really think of much to add except um, kind of going along with weather, but the current in the ocean. So the dolphins are (laughs) very uh, adapt to being able to swim up current or against current, and we are not. So we struggle sometimes to kind of keep up with them in the water um, to be able to observe their behavior and get it on uh, video. So yeah, for sure that current, I mean, they can be looking like they're not swimming at all and they are just like flying past you and there's nothing really you can do to keep up with them. It's just, you got to keep trying. And then eventually we kind of let them swim on their way. So yeah, definitely current would be one thing I would add. You know, I'd also add equipment challenges because, you know, we have adapted our equipment as time goes on, right? You get better scientific instrumentation, but again, you Try putting a computer underwater, right? Ooh, salt water, water, computer. I mean, anything you put underwater or in salt air is is going to corrode and have problems and break. So that's a challenge. I mean, I guess the good part is we have new technologies all the time, right? Like drones and, um, you know, uh, underwater devices 24-7 that you can mount on the bottom now. So... Pros and cons of technology, but you like again, like any study, I guess you have challenges with toys. Well, uh, nice that you mentioned the drones, and if I may have a follow-up question on that, um, have you observed that uh, dolphins maybe get scared when they hear a drone approaching, or because I guess with boats you can kind of control that a little bit more because you can just switch off all engines and just stay there. But with um, with drones and so on, have you observed anything like this or? They don't really care. Um, I mean, as far as we've noticed, they don't seem to care so much. Um, I think we also can fly it at a pretty high altitude to where maybe the noise is a little bit dimmed for them. Um, But when we put it up, we haven't noticed them like swimming faster to try and get away from it. And I think there have been a couple studies with not necessarily our species, but with a couple other species where it doesn't seem to affect their behavior or bother them in any way. So not that I've heard of. Denise, have you heard of any studies that have shown that they're bothering them? Well, like you just said, Cassie, there are studies going on about that. You know, people are testing types of drones, altitude, you know, activity of a drone. So I think so far... Drones are pretty good if you stay at certain altitudes, depending on the species and what you're doing with them. So, yeah, so that's probably an open question, but I'd say for the most part, no, because drones are being used a lot for whales and dolphins for health assessments, for tracking, of course. Um, Yeah, so I think as long as you behave, it'll be a good technology. Very cool, and and that's good news because the drones will definitely help with a lot of things to study. Um, you said the crew on the boat is really important. And I was thinking, are you 
going out on day trips or are you actually out at sea for several days at once? So we go out for about 10 days at a time. So we're a liveaboard a vessel and historically we're often remote. So like way away from land. So the crew can be really important. And I tell you, besides the captain, the cook is the most important person on the boat. Because <laughs> food is really important for social time and for staying healthy. Uh, Cassie laughs, but it's true. Um, and, and people getting along, you know, I mean, we've had various crew over the years and you have switch, switch outs. And, you know, we have some volunteers, too, and interns that come out. And, you know, personalities are really important in tight quarters when there's a lot of work to do. And, you know, everybody has mood swings occasionally. So, yeah, that, that's probably a psychological book to write in itself. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. I, I was just last week on a leadership course, and this is one of the things that uh, most uh, to-be leaders are worried about is, like, how to identify personality disorders in people before you hire them. And the, the answer <laughs> of the trainers was basically, like, Sorry, but there are no tools. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and yeah, when you're in a in a boat for a long time with a group of people, it can get really challenging. I I remember some of my expeditions to the Arctic, nine weeks on a research vessel. You can only go out briefly to the ice and come back. That can get yeah. challenging if you have some people that are not not very well up here. Yeah. Yeah, we we've often thought we should use our boat for training for NASA astronauts. Astronauts, you know, like <laughs> how well they idea. survive. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. Really important, even if you also do research on small islands. That I've been going to the crew and having people work together is just the key, and it either makes it an extremely positive. Um, experience or an extremely negative one or sometimes something in between. Um, so you guys have been studying Atlantic spotted dolphin behaviors for a very, very long time. Um, so what have you found out about them um, during your careers? Well, I mean, there's a long list. We know a lot about their basic behavior and their reproduction, for example. So um, you know, in our early years, we started just correlating sound with behaviors. So we know what sounds match, what behaviors. We know who hangs out with who, right? Um, we, we track the generations. And, you know, as I got graduate students involved in the project, uh, like Cassie, for example, did a really cool study asking the question of when spotted dolphins fight with each other versus when they fight with bottlenose dolphins, do they have different body language? And you can talk about the results a little if you want, Cass, but so you can kind of hone in on those really specific questions because the two species do interact. One of the most interesting features of where we work actually is that interspecies interaction. Yeah, so um, like Denise said, I was studying kind of differences in how the spotted dolphins fight their own species versus when they fight the bottlenose. And what we found is that when the spotteds fight the bottlenose, they actually use more energy intensive behaviors. So there's um, a point that needs to be made is that the bottlenose are about uh, three feet or one meter larger than the spotteds. So they're a much bigger animal. So it makes sense that the spotteds need to use a lot more energy when they're fighting those bigger animals. Um, but it can also be um, a little bit dangerous for them to do that because the, the bottlenose could inflict some serious damage if they wanted to. So um, we also found uh, 
Denise and somebody, I think it was Johnson. Chris um, Johnson. Chris Johnson. They found that the spotted dolphins kind of have to have buddies to help them kind of win the aggression. So it's about six spotted dolphins to one bottlenose dolphin to kind of like overturn that aggression in the spotted's favor. Um, and then on top of being able to study the aggression, I was able to um, figure out and, uh, sorry, I was able to look at those behaviors more intently when I'm filming the aggression under the water in real time. And I notice those behaviors if they're directed at us in any way. So open mouth is one thing that's used during aggression a lot. Um, and that's often misconstrued as looking as like the dolphin is smiling or the dolphin is happy, but they're actually kind of um, showing aggression towards us and kind of telling us to, hey, like back off or give us some room or even like get out of the water. So being able to study that for my master's thesis has like made me um, able to finely tune and figure out what behaviors they're directing at us and if we need to get out of the water or not. So, cause we always wanna respect their space. Yes, we wanna get the data as much as we can, but keeping that mutual respect between the two species or between us and the spotted is very important as well. Yeah, really, really important point as people interact with, you know, wild and captive animals for that matter is who are they and how can they tell you what they're feeling and what their, you know, motivation is. And so we've learned that over the years and we try to incorporate that into our research protocols for sure. And just a, another follow-up question on that. So when you're talking about behaviors and motivations, um, as a biologist, we always tend to think that um, certain animals, for example, will appear or will go to where there's more food for them. But is this the main driver for dolphins or maybe they you find more dolphins where they have more sargassum so they can play with it and then food, you know, it's like, well, we will find some food also in the sargassum or is it really, you know, food is the main thing and the rest doesn't really matter. I say it's probably food, sex, maybe sargassum. Okay. I mean, realistically, they have to eat right. That's like the number one yeah. thing. And in fact, um, in 2013, Half of our study group in one area moved quite a long way to the next sandbank down in the Bahamas because there was what we finally realized with some data from uh, Oceanographic, from uh, a data set from NOAA, that the food had crashed. And so after being there for almost 30 years, they had to move. I mean, that's pretty serious, right? If you're a resident animal because you have food around, all of a sudden your food dries up. So they had to move and adjust you know, their group, and they moved to a place with another group of dolphins who are already living. And so now they're having to get along with a new group of their own species, but it's still competition, right? So quite a natural experiment, but this is the challenge with climate change and all these things that are changing globally, right? Sounds like human migration, very similar, unfortunately. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, 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 since you brought up sex a minute ago, and I love talking about sex, um, when with, with these different pods and this this movement you just discussed, um, when when they're reproductive activity, uh, not sex, but re literal reproductive activity, is is that mostly carried out in the pod or the you know with their, within their own cohorts, or do they look for mates outside of? Uh, their main group of cohorts? Well, really good question. And uh, I'll throw some of it to Cassie, but um, part of it we don't know because they practice sex a lot, right? As juveniles. So they're very social, sexual. 
when they become reproductively viable, we see more serious mating behavior, which includes like um, male coalitions, trying to herd a female around and then competing with another coalition. But the only way for us to find out who really sires offspring is to do genetic work, right? And we do that by collecting fecal material uh, from known individuals and then analyzing it relative to the calves. But um, most places in the world that have studied dolphins and do genetic sampling from skin or biopsy sampling, I mean, it certainly looks like there are animals that come in from outside areas to mate because you got to spread the genes around, right? But, you know, or in some cases you might have uh, animal or males moving into a group that aren't related and they somehow uh, get incorporated into the group and now they're mixed up already. So still big questions. Um, Cassie, we've seen a lot of meeting in general, but it's 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 about tracking it long term and trying to figure it out with the data, right? Yeah. So um, as Denise was saying, so the older guys, so we call them the fused age class. So with the Atlantic spotted dolphin, they have four uh, color phases kind of relating to their age. So when the spotted dolphins are first born, they're born without spots. So they actually look like little bottlenose dolphins. And we call those the two tones. And then when they first start to get some spots, we call those the speckled. That's about three to four years old. And then they start to get uh, white spots up on the dorsal sides so on the top side. That's called a mottled. And that's probably about eight to 15 years old. And then the fuse, which are the adults, is about 15 plus. So what um, one of Dr. Herzing's PhD students found, her name is uh, Dr. Michelle Green. So she was the one who did Google <laughs> the fecal analyzing um, genetics to figure out who the father is. And she found that it's the fused animals. So those older adults are the ones who are actually siring the offspring. So one thing that's that we're curious of now, since we had that move down to Bimini, we're trying to figure out with the new genetics if there's intermingling between the Little Bahama Bank animals, which were the original study site, and a mixing in with the Great Bahama Bank, which are the Bimini guys. So to see if there's any genetic mixing between those is um, that new information that we're trying to get here soon. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see who's hiring the offspring and maybe there's some um, intermingling between the two groups. Yeah, well, yeah, that, well that's kind of what prompted my, my question when you said, well, they had to leave this and they're, you know, mingling in with these two different groups. That's, uh, you know, that, that seemed like a fascinating study to me. Thank you for sharing that and all. And now I'm coming up on the last question we have, and all, and this I hope this is the most fun question that you've been asked today. We don't usually get to ask this question to people, but I'd like each of you to share with us the most neatest, memorable, coolest. What what, what what's your best day at work? I guess working with these uh, magnificent, intelligent species. Well, there are a lot, of course, um, for those of us that have been out for decades. Um, you know, I think for me, part of the neatest insight of everything is that the dolphins are individuals and have specific personalities, right? And <clears throat> I remember uh, quite, a, quite a while ago when I was in the water with one specific dolphin named Paint. And dolphins often greet you by swimming around you fast and whistling, and that seems to be a typical greeting. But Paint would always saddle up to me in the water, and she'd dive down vertically and look up at me. And so I started mimicking her. I started diving down and looking up at her, and that became our little greeting over the years, right? So, okay, whatever. So she recognizes me as an individual, and I recognize her as an individual. So one day Paint came by, and she had 
her first calf, who was named Brush. And so I was swimming behind them and, and Paint did her little greeting, went down, and then I went down and looked up at her and we came back to the surface. And then all of a sudden her calf went down and hung there. And I was like, oh my God, she's teaching her calf how to greet me. And so of course I went down and hung, you know, and so it's that kind of thing where you go, wow, there's learning, there's teaching, there's individual recognition. Um, so that, that hit me pretty hard. It's like, okay, there's a lot going on here with their minds and much more than we can probably access with data to a certain extent. That's one of many stories, but that was that was one that I, I tell a fair amount of time just because it's pretty powerful. Yeah, for me, um, there's so many to count. Um, I think two kind of instances. One is just being able to be in the water when uh, aggression is going on. There's just so much data going on. It's all chaos, and it can be very intimidating to be in the water when the dolphins, because it's usually like big male groups that have the really powerful aggression. Um, the females, they do, they can be aggr aggressive towards one another, but it's not as dramatic. Um, so it's always cool to be able to watch all those behaviors that I was studying for my thesis and being able to like know that that's that behavior and what it's doing. Um, so that's really cool to be able to watch that underwater and be involved in that. Um, <clears throat> and then another instance is because we're talking um, about sargasm and how the dolphins play with it, um, one really cool experience was probably like two summers ago, <clears throat> we had Moose and his mom. So Moose is a speckled now. He's a speckled male. And then his mom, Mira, and they were playing with sargasm and they were super um, engaging with the humans. So they would drop the sargasm in front of us and we could pick it up and dive down. And then they'd be so excited and they'd twirl down with you and come in and grab it. And it's just really cool that um, a wild animal would take the time to just engage with the human. I mean, they could be doing whatever dolphins do, but to be able to have time to hang out with a human for a little bit and kind of teach them how to play their game, it's just a really um, awesome thing to be able to experience. And so, yeah, that's probably one of my favorites is when they get very engaging with the sargasm and kind of incorporating you in their world a little bit. I, I don't have any words at all. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've, I've done um, some behavioral study, believe it or not, with lobsters, Pangolier sargas, and those those guys can learn too, and um and it's and, and they can teach each other, not just learn, you know, you know, in Pavlovian stuff, and um but yeah, they can teach each other, and um anytime you have that kind of interaction, it's it's it's, it's something that goes straight to your heart, and um, so thanks for sharing those stories with us. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, those are the fun stories to tell. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I really hope that um, you and many other people get the chance to continue enjoying these um, beautiful animals in the wild for many, many years. And that we really manage to protect the environments where they live so that they can continue playing and continue eating where they're used to eating and not having to move around and, and be displayed. So thank you very much for the work you do and for, for sharing it with us today. I am sure our listeners will enjoy this interview a lot. Thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Okay. Well, um, Francisca, you want to add anything to that? No, I think you guys summed it up, per up perfectly. It was a really, really enjoyable interview and 
Um, I'm looking forward to maybe seeing dolphins once with sargassum as well. That would be cool. Um, want to thank you guys for uh, being with us today, for, all the way from Florida, and all. And uh, this this is. You know, I always say this, that this is one of my favorite interviews and, and really just about every one of them really is. And all they just keep getting better. And uh, but this is when it was a little bit different because we don't usually talk about mammals here. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so I thank you guys a whole lot. And we look forward to uh, hearing from you again in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate you guys having us. It was fun. Thanks a lot. What did you guys take away from this conversation? Robbie, what did you, what was your favorite part or what did you learn today? All, all of it was my favorite part. And all, um, and, and well, I, I, I kind of enjoyed, you know, the normal stuff and all that we, we usually do. But uh, my, the follow-up question about the uh, reproductive behavior was, I think that was the most fascinating part to me. And of course, that the uh, dolphins are uh, initiating play with the uh, researchers. I thought that was pretty cool as well. How about you, Mar? <laughs> well, actually, for me, um, like the part where I felt most identified with them was when they were talking about uh, the research expeditions and how if people are strange, then the work can be a little bit strange as well or stressful. And that if the people are really nice, then it can be really nice. Um, so that was the part where I was like, yeah, I feel you. I know what you mean. <laughs> and then about the, the dolphins and the sargassum interactions, I mean, I actually never thought about it before, but of course it makes sense that they will use it as a thing to play. Um, but still, I am pretty sure there are still questions that we haven't answered about this interaction. And I'm pretty sure the sargassum has other purposes in the life of a dolphin that is not just play. But I think no one has really looked at it before. So I was thinking like, ah, oh, this, this would be an amazing like PhD thesis or something to just work at on Okay, what do they really get out of this interaction besides something to play, right? Yeah, it was just in my head, I was already like planning five PhD projects about this. <laughs> so I really <laughs> like that. Yes, and I, I like the fact that they also showed that it isn't just like play isn't just play, like that play is extremely important for their social interactions and for becoming a, a good dolphin um, when they're older and, and knowing how to interact with each other, which I think is very similar in humans. And they say, said, okay, the, sar the sargassum is used for play, but that doesn't mean it's not essential for the dolphins because play is so important to dolphins. It, they may really need the sargassum and don't have much of an alternative for that. So I thought that was really interesting. And the other thing I thought that was also interesting is even though they are studying dolphins in the wild, they aren't against people studying dolphins um, in captivity. So they actually said that studying dolphins in captivity is really important. And I almost thought maybe they would would say, no, we all have, we have to study dolphins only in the wild, but they said there's some stuff you can study better in the wild and some stuff that's better in captivity. So I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah. In the, on that line, I was thinking 
we should actually take some sargassum and bring it to an aquarium and then you know you can do really experiments on this you know in an aquarium because you can put it in put it out and see what how they react to it and what they do with it and if if maybe you put sargassum in a tank for several months maybe their health improves or not i don't know you know like you can really look at a control group which is what they said you cannot really do um in the wild but yeah well just so you'll know just north of uh playa del carmen is la aventura it's a coastal city and they have a dolphin experience slash manatee thing they're going on so they got a lot of uh they got a number of uh marine mammals there large megafauna and uh i had some friends of mine from moat marine lab down there uh when i was there before i didn't get to go see them but they were down there testing some drones and some sonar sound equipment listening equipment um and they may be interested in uh doing something with you when y'all are down there next summer well i could i could yeah, I can introduce you to Beth Brady of the Moat Marine Lab, and maybe she could set something up for you. Um, is that the project on Isla Mujeres lobby, or is that a different one? No, that's just no, 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 no. That's right there. That's just north of you on the coast in uh, La Aventura. That that is south of us. That's between us and uh, Tulum. Okay, then south of you then. Yeah. And there's also a dolphin project in Isla Mujeres as well. Yeah, I don't know anyone working. When with I that. was there in, when I was there in 2007, I think it was. There was also in in Excaret, in the park Excaret. They also had dolphins, and you could also pay a lot of money to swim with them and whatever. And it was kind of half in the wild. I mean, they were in the ocean. They just had them in a kind of in a bay. Lots of opportunities. Yes, there are. Well, everyone, thank you so much for being with us today. You could have been anywhere else on the planet, but you chose to be with us here in Jupiter, Florida, with our uh, with our marine mammal folks. You could have, you know, or in Westphalia, Germany, with Mar, or down in the Playa del Carmen with uh, Francisca, or, or right here in the Low Countries of the Carolinas with me. But we appreciate you all for being here today. Uh, I want you to know this podcast is brought to you with uh, some financial support from Seafields. We really appreciate the, the, the work they're doing, the, dealing with sargassum inundation events, and uh, look forward to working with them in the future. And uh, we'll see you next week. See you all next week. Have fun thinking about dolphins playing with sargassum. Yeah, see you all next week. Thank you for tuning in today and learning with us from our guests. If you want more information about what our guests talked about today, then please check our show notes for links and information in our archives. And don't forget to like and share our podcast with your friends. If you enjoyed our podcast, please consider supporting us financially by becoming a patron. For as little as $1 per month, you can support us and get exclusive benefit of submitting questions for our interviewees before the interview. The Sargasm Podcast is produced by Marine Conservation Without Borders and is made possible with financial support from Seafields and the Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center, U.S. Department of Education, Title V grant. 
It is produced by Marcel Van de Camp, Lauren Blankenship, Cleo Maridakas, Francisca Elmer, and Eloise Lopez, and hosted by Robbie Thigpen, Francesca Elmer, Mar Fernandez, Florence Menez, Cleo Maridakas, and Paula Diaz. We will be back next week with another exciting guest. The music of this podcast is from the song Dama Prey by Drizzle the Roadrunner, an artist from Roatan. Follow him on Spotify or YouTube for more music. But for now, here is the full song, Dama Prey. Hey, brother. Hear me now. Brother, dog. Know me. Understand. Now for them, no one can see we get nothing. That's why they my pray and no waste front and star. Now for them, no one can see we get nothing. That's why they my pray. Now for them, my pray. They my pray, me no gain progress, not for them a pray. They my pray, me no reap success, not for them a pray. They my pray, me no gain progress, not for them a pray. They my pray, me no reap success, so me tell them ya. Only if it come from Joe, I'll accept that Not for them, I put the trust in and give me setback Yo, select that, we'll and pull up that Tell some wicked that bad mind, we no fear them Anytime them cheat and chat, we no hear them Me dash a few hearts, so body queer them Me dash a few hearts, so tell them where them Not for them, I pray Them I pray, me no gain progress Not for them, I pray Success to so me tell them yeah Yes, me know me have a lot of fake friends But me never would have taught me would have have fake family So me tell them straight, me no trust them Me no trust you and me no trust him Fake friend must lost bad mind in a real life Star, me no rate that Star, me no rate that Me real for me would have bust a million shot in a real life Real, real, real life Now for them a free Them a free, me no gain progress Now for them a free I pray me no great success Now for them I pray I pray me no gain progress Now for them I pray I pray me no great success So me tell ya Alike, but they my hate and grudge and creep on mine. They my move like Judas. They my move like Judas. Plus, everybody have a life to live. So when they give one rash clock, who I try to judge me? Let them chip and chat to what them want to say. Cause none of them out there, not feed me. Now them a free. They my free, me no gain progress. Now for them a free. They my free, me no rape success. Now for them I'm free